0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu. Org. That's www.gbfperu.org I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. To take your copy of God's Word this morning, open to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 13. Been making our way through the book of Acts, a beautiful book, looking at how our risen Lord Jesus Christ is still at work in His church, beginning His church, birthing His church establishing His church, growing His church. And it's with that sight and with that burden that we're studying in the book of Acts because we believe that Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, is working in us and through us and among us even today. hope that's why you're here today. Because you want Jesus Christ to work among us, because you want Jesus Christ to work in you. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. I'm going to begin reading in verse 44 of Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44 through the end of the chapter. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Of all of the items sold at auction from that ship, the Titanic, the first and most expensive items that were sold were a collection, a collection of something that was brought up from the seafloor. And we can understand why it sold for the most. It was a collection of diamond bracelets that were brought up from the ocean floor that were sold at auction for 200, and 200 million dollars. The second most expensive item, however, might surprise you. What was the second most expensive thing sold at auction from the Titanic? They were the ship's plans. A large piece of paper measured 32 feet long, which detailed all of the intricacies of the ship. Sold for $362,000 dollars. All of that for a piece of paper. And while it's not the most physically expensive item, it's often regarded as the most important item from the ship. This was the item that was the plan that put in motion thousands of engineers, carpenters, welders, electricians, plumbers, painters, designers, and mechanics on a ship that was thought to have the best marine technologies known to man and was one of the most extravagant ships of its day. It began as a great plan, but it ended as a huge piece of metal that now rests on the ocean floor in the North Atlantic. The plan was so well devised, the plan that was so specific, a plan that included everything that it needed to include, a plan of such enormous scale and magnitude and expertise that it led one crew member to say to one passenger, Mrs. Sylvia Caldwell, as she boarded that ship, he exclaimed to her, God himself could not sink this ship. Don't tempt God like that. For all the plans, for all of the ingenuity, for all of the technology, for all of the precision in building that ship, none of those things could stop the Titanic from sinking. It didn't matter how excellent man thought the plans were, and yet this is a good comparison to the whole of mankind. From the beginning, man has thought that we are able to devise a great plan, a plan that is perfect, a plan that will take care of everything wrong in our lives, a plan that will take, that will, that will take care of everything that is difficult and wrong with the world. It will be a perfect plan, but man's plan in the end leads to destruction. Oftentimes we can think to ourselves, I have a great plan for my life. It's everyone else who gets in the way. Man's plan, in the end, can't deliver on what it promises. God's plan, on the other hand, really is perfect. We are talking here today about God's plan of salvation. God's plan To reconcile mankind to himself. God's plan to one day make everything right again in the world that has gone terribly, terribly, tragically wrong. God's plan of salvation always delivers exactly what he desires and it works exactly how he intends it to work. God's plan is bigger, it is better, it is stronger than any plan we could ever dream of. You think you can outplan God? You think that you know a better way? Forget it. There is no better way and there is no better plan than God's plan. <laughs> yet yet mankind still kicks against the goads thinking that we can devise a better plan. How will you respond when you come to realize God's plan of salvation is far superior to any plan devised by man? That's an important question because as we come here to the end of Acts chapter 13, we see different responses to God's plan of salvation. We see different people responding in different ways. And how they respond is a matter of eternal significance. God's plan of salvation is the message of the gospel. And it's God's perfect plan. And it's amazing to see how quickly these responses appear. Think about it for a moment. Paul and Barnabas arrive in this town called Pisidia Antioch. They have just proclaimed the gospel message in the synagogue in that town. People... Beg them to hear the message again the next week. And some people were actually converted in verse 44 of chapter 13. And now, here we are, beginning in verse 44, a week later. Paul and Barnabas have only been here for a week or so. And it didn't take long for responses to be formulated. It didn't take years and years of Paul and Barnabas ministering in this region. Lines were drawn quickly. And it shows how important one's response is to the gospel. What are the responses? Here in these verses we see really two. But with that second response, that positive response, we also see an encore. So three points this morning. First the negative, then the positive, and then maybe we would say the third point, the positive amplified even more. But number one this morning, jealousy rejects God's gracious gospel. Jealousy rejects God's gracious gospel. There he was outside the house. Inside the house, there was a great celebration, a party, but he didn't join them. He chose to sit outside of the house. He was angry, so angry he was seething with anger. Arms folded, at times pacing back and forth. He was boiling He went over and over in his mind again and again and again. Everything that he had done right. He dwelt upon his loyalty. He dwelt upon his faithfulness, his obedience, his goodness, and all for what? What thanks did he ever receive for anything that he had ever done? What reward did he get for all of his hard work? He'd had it. But then as he sat there outside of the party that was going on inside the house, his father comes to him. Talks to him, wants to know what's wrong, why he won't join them inside, join the celebration going on. His father graciously pleads for him to come in, but it was too much. And finally, he couldn't hold it in any longer, and he says to his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. You never threw a celebration for me and my friends. But when this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There it was. Right there. Black and white. Plain as day. He couldn't hide it. He couldn't conceal it. He was jealous. The prodigal son had returned home. The older brother was jealous. Jealousy can be a dangerous emotion. It can cause us to lapse in rational thought. It can make our blood boil. It can... Make us rush into rash decisions. It can embolden us in wrong or false positions. It can entrench us in our own way. Fighting tooth and nail to defend our own glory. Jealousy confronts us in the verses of our text this morning. It was the next Sabbath. Word had spread about the message that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. And now, this Sabbath, instead of only talking to the Jews and God fearing Gentiles, in fact, the whole town gathered to hear Paul and Barnabas. What was it that they had gathered to hear? What does it say there? They gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Oh, that people would want to hear. The word of the Lord in our day. That people would want to hear what God had to tell them. What God would reveal to them through His word. What salvation there was for them and how they were called to receive it. The word of the Lord is central in our text. In fact, if you go through our text, you see it referenced four times. We cannot miss it. It was the word of the Lord which God was using to build Christ's church. And it was vastly a better message than any message they could get in the world. But the Jews were more concerned about what they saw than about what they heard, they saw the crowds. They saw all the people flock to hear Paul and Barnabas and the gospel which they proclaimed and it upset them. It made them angry. It caused jealousy to fill them up. To dominate all that they were thinking about. They were kept from hearing the truth from accepting the truth. They saw all of the popularity that Paul and Barnabas received and they couldn't stand it. Rarely do we know appropriate jealousy. We instead are familiar with the selfish, self-centered jealousy that plagues our world. We hate anything that would draw the attention away from us. We easily despise anything that might detract from us. We do not enjoy those things that we perceive to steal our thunder or take what we believe to be rightfully ours. Sinful jealousy fights for its own glory, fights for its own prominence, fights for its own right to be heard, for its own self-perceived importance. But this is precisely what true Christianity does. It it takes the attention away from us. It takes whatever glory we think we have away from us. It takes whatever prominence we think we possess and it puts all of the attention in its rightful place on Jesus Christ. This is where the Jews got it all wrong. They were jealous because they thought Paul and Barnabas received the glory. They didn't see... The greater glory of God that was shining forth through the gospel of Jesus Christ that they proclaimed. And the jealousy that filled their heart. Do you see that that there? They were filled with jealousy. The jealousy that filled them was a heart problem. And how was it manifested? How did you see into their hearts to know that they were jealous? How did this jealousy manifest itself in the lives of the Jews? It started with a different message. They introduced a contradictory message to the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are calling on the Gentiles to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the Jews are saying, no, 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 no. The only way to God is through keeping the law and circumcision. It's not just that easy to put your trust in Jesus. No, you need to do more to be saved. You need to add something else to it. Any message that is contradictory to the gospel is a message that is anti-gospel and anti-grace. It's a message that not only attacks the very heart and nature of God, But it also attacks the messenger of truth with malice, intends to cause them suffering. Notice what it says about Paul. They reviled Paul. And so, as they revile Paul, the Jews of this city, we see a connection of Paul's suffering with the suffering that Jesus Christ himself endured when he was reviled before he went the cross jealousy always detracts attempts to denigrate the gospel at all costs it does everything to ensure that attention is drawn away from the true gospel and even those who proclaim the true gospel are undermined and attacked what do Paul and Barnabas do they confront the jealousy head on And they tell this to the Jews, the word of God was spoken to you. You heard the message. You heard the truth. You had the chance to respond and find the salvation that is offered through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and through his death and resurrection. The gospel came to you first, Jews, but you thrust it aside. You rejected it. And in rejecting the gospel, they weren't rejecting man. They they weren't rejecting man's message. They were rejecting God's message and so thrusting God aside. God, get out of the way so I can do it my own way, the way I want to do it. A way that makes better sense to me. A way that depends more upon me. So, they judge themselves to be superior over God's plan to save people. God's gracious gospel had been extended to them, offered to them. God's greatest gift, God's own son. And they spurned it. And said, no, that is not the way to eternal life. How is it that someone can judge themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. You see that there? Since you thrust it aside, this is verse 46, since you thrust it aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. How do you do that? They believe they could attain it on their own if they were just good enough. How many people today... Would thrust aside the Word of God? How many today would thrust aside the Gospel? How many today would want God and His gracious Gospel to get out of their way so they can live the life that they want to live it? Even some who call themselves Christians. Listen to James 3:14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Could it be that jealousy is even dangerously apparent in the church? Get out of the way, God. Let me live how I want to live. Don't ask too much from me. Don't ask for me to sacrifice too much. Don't make it too inconvenient. Don't attract any attention away from me. Don't keep any glory from me, God. Being filled with jealousy is a dangerous response to God's gracious. Gospel, just like it was for the prodigal son's older brother. Number two, joy rejoices in God's sovereign gospel. Joy rejoices in God's sovereign gospel. In our text this morning, we see a stark contrast. One group who responded to the gospel message with jealousy, one group who responded to the gospel with no joy, but another group who responded rightly. And it's here we see the gospel message going out to all people. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the Jews, but now they were turning to the Gentiles to preach the same message. They didn't have to change the message for the Gentiles. It was the, absolutely the same message. And it's what the Lord had commanded them to do. Do You see that in verse 47? For so the Lord has commanded us. There's no way out of this for them. But notice, how is it that the Lord commanded them? He commanded them through a verse in the Old Testament. This verse is from Isaiah 49, 6. And it's a verse that points us forward to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Look at that verse that's quoted there in verse 47 of our text. I have made you, so that's God, I believe, speaking to His Messiah, I have made you. I have appointed you. God has appointed his Messiah to be a light for the Gentiles. This is what the Gentiles needed. They needed a light. They were in darkness. They lived in death. They lived in falsehood and lies. They needed the light to shine upon them, bring them out of their darkness. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ has done in his coming. He is a light, a revelation for the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Simeon said when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple. There was a man named Simeon there, a prophet, a priest, who said this over This small child, Jesus, when he was only a few days old. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is the light for the Gentiles And is the one who ultimately brings salvation to the ends of the earth because ultimately Jesus is salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. He is our light. And I'm thankful that he is our light because if he wasn't our light, we would still be in darkness. What is also fascinating about these verses is that they include themselves in this epic mission. So, yes, the Messiah has come as a light to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, but now Paul and Barnabas include themselves in this mission. That they get to bring the message of salvation To the Gentiles. That they are appointed by God to to bring the light of Jesus Christ to other people. That they would proclaim that Jesus Christ would suffer. That he would die. That he would be risen again on the third day. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins was to be proclaimed to all the nations. They were fulfilling the commission that had been given to them. What great news to all the nations. And what did the Gentiles do when they heard this? They rejoiced and they glorified the word of the Lord. And I think we see here something that we need to understand this morning. We need to understand that we are people who need to be saved. How many people in our world would utterly turn up their nose at even the slightest notion that they need to be saved? That there's something wrong? That they need to be rescued? Well, my life's pretty good. I got a nice job. I got a nice family. I got a couple cars. I got a nice house. How many people are blind to the fact that they have an eternal destiny that they will meet? And that they fail to see that they need to be rescued, they need to be saved. Because God's wrath is upon them. Because they deserve punishment for their sin. But when you know the salvation that Jesus Christ brings, when you hear these words here that salvation is being brought to the ends of the earth, that we are people who need to be saved, and that now there is a way out, there is a salvation that is provided for us, the Gentiles rejoice, they glorify in the word of God, because they were not an afterthought of God. They were not God's plan B option that would only come into effect if plan A didn't work out or if it fizzled out. No, they were part of God's perfect plan all along. Plan from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. God didn't bring salvation to them. God didn't bring salvation to us by accident. God didn't bring salvation begrudgingly. No, it was God's sovereign plan to save Gentiles, people like us, to save people from every walk of life, from every nation of the world, from every tribe, from every tongue, people, nation, rejoice, and glory in the sovereign gospel of God. This was His plan all along. And what is the right response? Joy. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. If you don't know joy, my dear friend, if you don't know joy, you don't know the gospel. You don't see God's perfect, gracious, loving plan that he is perfectly completing in this world and that he will see it through to the end. If you don't know joy, it's time to go back to the gospel to make sure that you understand it, that you have responded to it because the natural, organic response in one's life to this gospel is joy and joy cannot be hidden Don't think you can fake it and pretend like you've got everything together if you don't have joy because you can't. And then here's the beauty of verse 48 that comes to us. And as as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. They knew the joy. They gloried in the word of the Lord and they believed As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How beautiful is that? It's the beauty of the doctrine of election. The action that's described here, this appointing, is in the passive voice which tells us this is God who is acting. Only God grants eternal life. Only God appoints people to eternal life. Listen to John 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen carefully. I, this is Jesus talking, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God appointed by His grace, and they believed. How do you know those who have been appointed? They've put their faith and complete trust in Jesus Christ alone. They have believed in Him. And notice notice where this doctrine of election is placed it's placed right here in the middle of the act of evangelism that's often the charge that's brought against election well if god is going to save people anyway it doesn't matter what you do you don't have to do anything god will save them yes god does save but it is inaccurate to think god does this any other way than by the means He has put in place, and those means are evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel. This is why we evangelize. We spread the gospel and God saves those whom he has appointed to eternal life. We don't know who those are, but we are faithful to do what God has called us to do and it becomes a joy to us because then all of the evangelism, all of the proclaiming of the gospel is not dependent upon us. It doesn't matter how well I present the argument to you. It doesn't matter how shiny I make it look. It's completely dependent upon God. And what joy then, true joy and rejoicing, fills the lives of believers as we see God at work in hearts and in lives to save them and rescue them and redeem them and reconcile them to himself. Number three. We've seen the negative, jealousy. We've seen the positive response, joy. And now we see the positive response amplified. Number three, joy reverberates despite persecution against the gospel. Joy reverberates despite persecution against the gospel. How amazing, after this small taste of the doctrine of election in verse 48, that evangelism isn't killed off. In fact, Don't we see the opposite to be true? What happens then? The word of the Lord, verse 49, was spreading throughout the whole region. Keeps moving forward. The gospel was proclaimed. They witnessed about Jesus Christ. And I believe in saying that the word of the Lord spread to the whole region. It's not merely saying that the information was passed on. On. But I believe what it's saying is that more and more people were saved. You could visibly see the word of the Lord spreading because there were transformed lives all over the place. In the wake of the word were hearts that had been changed by the grace of God and had come to believe and embrace Jesus Christ. And then everything was perfect, right? Apparently not. The Jews in Pisidia, Antioch, this town, stirred up devout women of high standing, leading men of the city to go against Paul and Barnabas, to persecute them, to slander them, to threaten them, to seek their harm and their shame, to keep them from continuing to spread the gospel. And they drove them out of their district with their persecution. Paul and Barnabas had to physically leave the location because the persecution that was taking place. And it was so strong, so fierce, so opposed to them that they had to leave. But what did they do as they left? They shook the dust off from their feet against them as to be a testimony to this town. A sign of judgment, that they would be judged by God because they had rejected his gospel. It was a visible sign that judgment was upon them. And Paul and Barnabas did not even want to have a dust, a speck of dust from the city upon their feet so as to be associated with them when this judgment of God would come upon them. Paul and Barnabas were merely proclaiming the gospel, were merely telling people the truth, and were persecuted for it, and left, and had to leave, and were forced to leave. And then what happens? Everyone was dejected, everyone was down. Everyone was despairing. Everyone was ready to give up. Everyone was ready to throw in the towel. Everyone was tired of the difficulty. Everyone questioned whether or not it was worth it. Everyone turned into an Eeyore with a rain cloud over themselves, telling themselves that the pain was too great. The persecution was too harsh. The suffering was too intense. It was all too much and they couldn't handle it. Is that what they said? Is that what they did? Not on your life. What does it say, the very last verse? The disciples were filled with joy. Persecution didn't steal their joy. No, their joy continued to reverberate like the echo in a canyon, like the sound that bounces through cavernous hall. Nothing could stop it. It went on and on and on. This is your life, believer. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But that persecution does not steal your joy. Nothing can take away your joy from you. Because it is an eternal joy implanted in your soul by the almighty infinite creator himself, which has come to you through the gospel of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who rose again from the dead, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Look at the joy of the gospel. Look to Christ and all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and of His grace. But this is not singular joy. It's also double joy because they were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the living God was now indwelling them, living through them. The gift of the Spirit had been given and He dominated their lives. He is the seal upon the life of the believer, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in eternity. What joy the Spirit brings to the life of the believer, who strengthens us, who upholds us, who encourages us, who helps us to persevere through whatever comes our way on the the earth. Think about it for a moment. That last verse. Filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. How did they how did they know that? How do they know that the disciples were filled with joy? How do they know that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it some divine message that was given to Paul or Barnabas or Luke who writes the the book of Acts? Is it some divine revelation that's given to them that, hey, these people, they're filled with joy. And, hey, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't necessarily think it was divine revelation that illuminated their minds to this fact. I think they knew that they were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit because you could see it. You could see the evidence that they were filled with joy. You could see the evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with joy? How many times, how many times, we would ask ourselves that question? We're kind of like, shh, don't tell me, don't tell anybody about the joy that I have. Don't want to seem like a crazy person. Are you filled with the Spirit? Well, I'm filled with the Spirit, but I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to do anything. When you're filled with joy, when you're filled with the Spirit, there's no way that people can miss it. You see the joy and you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. So, do people see the evidence in your life, followers of Jesus Christ? Do people see the joy? Do people see the Spirit in your life? You can't hide it. You can't contain it. You can't wish it away. Is that how people would describe us? There are joyful people. There are people that there's something different about them. They have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. There's something about these people that's different. All because we've seen the gospel, all because we've received the gospel, all because we've believed in Jesus Christ, and now our lives are completely transformed and changed and different. What is it for you this morning? Jealousy or joy? Is it thrusting aside the word of the Lord or is it believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it judging yourself to be unworthy of eternal life or is it God's gracious appointment of ruined sinners to experience eternal life where you find your joy? Is it something that is going to try to steal your joy That you let get you down or will you look to your Savior who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is now at God's right hand? It was for joy that Jesus went to the cross. It was for joy of salvation that comes through Him Alone, It was for joy that could never be put to death. It was for us to believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray. That we would be those filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. That you would make that abundantly evident in our lives. We can't hide it. We can't get around it. It's the natural outpouring of our hearts because of the work that you've done in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us never move away from that. But let us continue to know it. And know that there will be persecution. Know that there will be difficulties. Know that there will be afflictions. But that none of those things could ever take away the life that we have in you, that you did not spare your own son for us, but gave him up to give us that love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Stand as we sing the hymn of uh, invitation this morning. See the destined day arise.